I've mentioned many times on this podcast the thing that I call uh, a shortcut. And by that I mean uh, a book or a movie or a documentary or something like that, where we are suddenly given access to the perspectives or the experiences of just a sea of humanity, many more people than we might otherwise expect perhaps from another novel, another book, or another movie. Uh, a version of this that I've mentioned before is Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree, which is filled with the interviews and uh, the lives of hundreds of people. The short stories of the Irish writer William Trevor is another one. Uh, Studs Terkel's book Working, or really any of Studs Terkel's books, is another thing. If you just go looking for the oral history of X, of whatever subject it is, it almost doesn't matter what the subject is. When you go looking for an oral history of something, it's very often uh, a wonderful surprise, the voices and the people that you will come in contact with. And that's what I want to uh, get into today. And the book that I'll be reading from is by Norman Longmate, and it's called how We Lived Then, A History of Everyday Life During the Second World War. And of course, he means uh, in England specifically. This is a book that I've had for almost 10 years. And for some reason, I have avoided reading it for almost 10 years. And I'm glad that in the past month, I finally uh, gotten into it because it is pretty incredible. I just want to read uh, just bits and pieces here and there from the first 100 pages or so of what people in England were going through uh, just before war was declared in 1939 and then in the years uh, following that. Um, Norman Longmate uh, was able to do uh, an incredible thing here, and this is just only a sampling. And they're talking in this part about um, the introduction of gas masks because they weren't sure uh, they were pretty sure that the Germans would bomb, uh, but they wondered if they would be bombing them with poison gas. And it says, a one Burton-on-Trent mother remembers collecting gas masks for her family from the crowded parish hall. Her two daughters were still awake when she arrived home and had a joyous game galloping round the bedroom in their new masks while an elderly relation staying with the family sat down and wept at the sight. And so, for instance, that's just on page three. That is uh, two sentences from page three. And this, is, this book is 500 pages of details just like that, uh, where you suddenly have just an insight into these people's lives. Let me find the next one here. Um, and there was also a plan uh, early in the war, and uh, it was used haphazardly uh, with better or less success, depending on the situation or the year, of preparing the country for bombing or perhaps even for uh, an invasion that they, that they thought uh, might well happen. And there were plans to disperse the population throughout the country. On the one hand, there was... Um, getting children out of uh, urban areas and into the country. And in other ways, there was plans to get uh, important businesses like the BBC or manufacturing places or stuff, manufacturing businesses, things like that. 
having them relocate into the country as well, away from places that could be attacked. And this passage says this, uh, less obvious were the preparations to disperse the population. The government had published in the month after Munich, Sir John Anderson's report on evacuation. And in May of 1939, it announced the division of the country into quote, danger areas where evacuation was recommended and into neutral areas with no movement and into safe or reception areas, or areas where the people fleeing the danger areas could go to. Each contained roughly a third of the population. Throughout the danger areas in the spring of 1939, lists were being compiled of children wishing to be evacuated, and there were several large-scale rehearsals, while in the safe areas, billeting officers were equally busy compiling tables of potential hosts for these children. Thousands of organizations and firms in the big cities were, like the government itself, making similar plans to move as well, and there was a boom in the sale of large country houses, which could house whole offices and their staffs, and in block bookings in country hotels, as well as uh, in famous uh, British seaside resorts. See here, there's a mention here that in, on August 29th, 1939, which was a Tuesday, uh, the government's announcement on that day uh, was that all place names visible from the air must be obliterated immediately, and this affected the appearance of many railway stations, as all but the smallest name boards were taken down. And about 100 pages after that note, uh, we hear more about that business. So one of my favorite details uh, from the war, because you, this is something you never really uh, come across otherwise, at least not that I, I don't think I have. And it says, of all the anti-invasion preparations at this time, the one which inconvenienced the ordinary civilian most was the order on the 31st of May, and this is in 1940, I believe, where they give it again, uh, for the taking down of any sign which furnished any indication of the name of, or the direction of, or the distance to any place. The removal of signposts was followed by a wholesale uprooting of milestones, the defacing of the names of towns on war memorials, and the painting over of shop and other signs identifying the town or the village. Bust destination blinds were amended to read the Red Lion, or Top of the Hill. The bus company's name now appeared on the side of vehicles as Blank and District Limited, as though concealing some blacked-out obscenity, and local shop fronts displayed signs like Blank Village Stores or the Blank Cake Shop. Local newspaper editors often sent a reporter in search of items giving the names of the towns which had been overlooked to telephone boxes, to news agents' advertisement boards, mothers' union banners and parish magazines and churches, and bus timetables being frequent culprits. It was not until October of 1942 that signposts could again be displayed in towns, and not until May 1943 that villages became identifiable, and not until October of 1944 that all restrictions 
were completely removed. Isn't that uh, incredible? This is before uh, GPS, of course, so uh, you had to know where the hell you were going. Otherwise, you wouldn't know where the hell uh, you were. Um, and there are many remarks where, especially during 1939, where the where war is assumed to be on its way, but then it just doesn't happen, where people become immediately cynical about preparations and about other people's worries. And it says, um, now the receptionist of a, of a certain business predicted disaster so convincingly that she emptied the entire hotel where they were staying. The headmaster observing, if we don't go now, we shall find the road blocked with tanks. And this became a remark, which later became a family joke. But as they filed out, the first evacuees were already moving in. And a page later, uh, there's a great deal in this book about uh, not only the removal of signs and signposts and identifying marks, but of blacking out uh, your windows, of not giving any targets to German planes, the version of this I always heard was that it happened in London, um, but it happened all throughout the country. And in this uh, passage, it says, uh, in Ramsgate, a hostile crowd gathered outside a house with unscreened upstairs windows, and they were prepared to pelt them with stones from the garden rockery. The owner, who claimed never to have heard of the blackout, was later fined 15 pounds. And... This is a nice detail as well. Um, this is in, does it have the date here? It does not have the date here, but I'm pretty sure it is in September of 1939. It says, uh, 20,000 television sets in Britain went blank and they were not to carry another picture again until 1946. And here, uh, is a passage, I believe. Let's see what it says here. Uh, the wife of a Chesterfield factory owner, alone in the house as her husband was absent on ARP duties, noted this in her diary. Dreadful thunderstorm, all lights out, busy with the blinds. A woman traveling back to London from a curtailed holiday in the West Country watched the lightning flashes light up the faces of the passengers jammed into the darkened coaches because the lights were also off in the trains. And the darkened coaches, which were in total blackness, except for the occasional gleam from the guard's lantern as he struggled down the crowded corridors. This is this woman's uh, last memory of peacetime or perhaps her first memory of being at war. Um, it says that talking about gas masks again. Uh, a young woman working on a Sussex farm self-consciously took her gas masks with her that morning as she went to feed the chickens and to fetch the cows in for milking. This is on Sunday the 3rd of September 1939. And it says, there were still that morning a million families where the breadwinner was unemployed and many people could not afford a wireless set, that is a radio, but already, traditional British reserve was breaking down and the owners of wireless sets were inviting their neighbors inside. This was the first time the family next door had ever been inside our house. 
though we had already lived side by side with them for nine years. And that is uh, Norman Longmate talking uh, about himself, about his own family, because often he does break the fourth wall because, of course, uh, he lived through the war as well, didn't he? And this book, if you look at the introduction to it, is just uh, built out of thousands and thousands of uh, interviews and um, questionnaires that he put out that were returned and filled out, and also the diaries and the journals of people who were kind enough to let him uh, read them and publish them in this book. He never gives anybody's name outside of uh, public figures. But that's something too, isn't it? That for the first time, uh, you get to see what your neighbor's house looks like. I thought uh, we, <clears throat> I thought my wife and I were reserved, but uh, at least we can say that our neighbors have been over the house uh, many more times uh, in the past 10 years than just once. Um, and this is what it says in another passage. A Norfolk woman married in May after an argument with her husband, who had wanted to wait a few months as it would, quote, soon be all over, she remembers that the declaration of war in September now provoked a new discussion, as he might well be killed should they have a baby. As before, his wife won the argument, and her fears proved groundless. And by the end of the war, the family numbered four. Let's see. Here we are. Yes, this is uh, the kids. Uh, the accounts of what children's lives were during uh, the war. Um, on the one hand, they have difficulties because they can't get uh, their sweets and their chocolates and their snacks. But otherwise, because they don't really have any comprehension about what's going on, um, they sort of remember the war years as not being so bad. And that is what this detail is. Um, in Oldham, a headmaster's daughter, discovered that for the first Sunday in memory, the children were allowed to play in the back alleys between the houses, and that the adults were so busy chatting that, even more remarkable, no one called them in as darkness fell. And talking about church, people going to church on the first day of the proper war, uh, many who missed church that morning felt a sudden need to attend it that night, and congregations were good. A 17-year-old Birmingham girl was impressed by the rows of gas mask boxes which were lining the pews at Evensong. And, oh, this is, and there's a great deal in this book that is uh, funny. And uh, they talk about, um, well, the television went off for, until 1946. Uh, the radio never did. The BBC was on all the time. And they're talking about uh, a, a personality at the time named Sandy McPherson, and I guess uh, who played his theater organ over the radio. And one of the letters that the BBC received uh, at one point said, I could be reconciled to an air raid if in the course of it a bomb would fall on Sandy McPherson and his everlasting organ, preferably while he was playing his signature tune. Isn't that nice? Um, and let's look at this one. Now we're talking about uh, putting the lights out, the uh, blacking out the windows. How the hell do you do that? Um, if you, let's see what it says. Um, 
one of the recommendations says this, the, the blackout curtains or whatever you're using to cover the, the windows, uh, these can be of any thick, dark colored material, such as dark blue or black or dark green glazed Holland, Lancaster or Italian cloth. If you cannot uh, manage this, you could obscure your windows by fixing up sheets of black paper or thick dark brown paper mounted on battens. The leaflet also included a helpful recipe for a dye, which was guaranteed to make any material opaque, and in the light in the light evenings of that hot summer, particularly after a government warning on the 23rd of August, my birthday, millions of men were busy carrying out the direction to take one pound of concentrated size, three pounds of lamp black in powder form, a half gill of gold size. The size and lamp black should be thoroughly mixed and two and a half gallons of boiling water added. This quantity will cover about 80 square yards of material. And after another description of another kind of brew, uh, a housekeeper says, uh, no witch's brew could ever have had more evil spells cast with every stir in the deep cauldron. Venom, hate, and misery were mixed into the evil-looking stew. There's a great deal about blackouts. Uh, the daughter of a Sussex farmer remembers making up the sateen curtains on her ancient sewing machine and fixing them with rings and hooks to all the windows except the kitchen, which merited an outside shutter of roofing felt on a wooden frame. And at first, she remembers, doing the blackouts was an exciting ritual every evening. But when the novelty wore off, it became merely another chore. And it says, although for most adults, adjustment to the blackout took months, children often became at home in the darkness far more quickly. In one Cambridgeshire village, the children played ghosts in the churchyard, emerging silently from behind the gravestones to frighten passengers alighting at a nearby bus stop. I like these kids. There's a lot, a lot of stuff coming up about the kids. Um, a Yorkshire farmer remembers the police calling about a light said to appear every night over his building, but this light turned out to be the evening star. It's a nice detail. Uh, most, prob most people were probably at some time lost in the blackout, not, to, not just because the signs are gone, but also now they can't see anything. A young Aberdeen wife remembers that, although nothing stronger than tea was served, several people walked straight out of a dance hall held uh, in the middle of a park, and they ended up going straight into the adjoining pond. somewhere. It must be uh, elsewhere in the book. They mention uh, the great difficulty of trying to black out, you know, uh, a church or um, a university building that has uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of, uh, of windows. And here we are. Let's see. What is this? Here we're talking about the, the evacuations, and I believe of of, of children, yes. So imagine that, all you parents out there. Uh, you live in an urban area. Imagine yourself living in London. 
and um, you can't get out. You're, the, the father in the family is probably being called up. The mother is going to be left at home, um, and uh, there's no room for her at these places where they're being evacuated to. But you're sending your kids off into the country to live basically with people that you have um, never met. How many of us would feel comfortable doing that? It says, many schools had been assembling the children every morning for the past week just to keep them together. And one helper at a North London infant and junior school believes she will never get out of her ears the chorus of 10 green bottles sung by hundreds of five to 12 year olds as they sat on the floor of the school hall during these days of waiting to, to depart. The departure when it actually came was, by universal agreement, a model of efficiency. Usually the children were mustered in the playground, parents being asked to stay outside, and then each school set off for the station led by a marked man, often the caretaker, carrying a placard giving its name and reference number. The effort involved was prodigious. 72 London transport stations were involved, and in four days, just four days, the main line railway companies carried more than 1,300,000 official evacuees and nearly 4,000 special trains. But when they, uh, when they arrive at the place where they're supposed to uh, be hiding out from the bombs that are falling on the bigger cities, uh, the sad decision was, uh, was made that it's sort of like picking kids for teams where the adults in the, in the village would line up and they would get to choose the kid. And you'll find out what happens uh, about that in just a moment. Um, the hardest burden of all that day fell on the parents and many comforted themselves with small details like the fact that their daughter looked proud of her new gas mask case or that their son seemed thrilled to have secured his favorite front seat upstairs on the bus. And yeah, here's one of the kids. Here we are. Um, you can imagine people uh, taking the quote, good looking or whatever uh, respectable looking kids and leaving the other ones um, unchosen. And it says, a 13 year old girl guide in the village of High Broom near Tunbridge Wells noticed that these smartly dressed little girls were soon spoken for, but that a small tousle haired boy, trousers too big, socks round his ankles, threadbare shirt and jacket, and a small paper parcel of his belongings tied to his gas mask case, this little boy remained unclaimed for a long time. And this has to be my favorite of the funny bits here. Uh, you end up uh, with kids who are perhaps a, a bit uncouth living in the city and uh, teaching their um, teaching the people they're they're staying with uh, new ways to live and new ways to speak as well. It says a small boy in Oxford astonished the two respectable elderly ladies who had taken him in by helpfully remarking after supper that he would put himself to bed, quote, so you two old geezers can get off to the boozer. So you two old geezers can get off to the boozer. I like that kid. Uh, here's another kid. It says, 
Another evacuee sent shopping in Eastbourne returned proudly with both the goods and the money because he had stolen everything on the list. At least he was able to uh, follow the list. Uh, a third child uh, fried his host's tropical goldfish, which was worth 25 pounds, so that he could eat it. Uh, Jewish evacuees, uh, by contrast, caused little trouble. This is after a paragraph where, for some reason, it says that Roman Catholic evacuees were by far the dirtiest, the most ragged, etc., etc. Uh, Jewish evacuees, by contrast, caused little trouble. One East London mother remembers appreciatively that in Biggleswade, at least, there were Hebrew classes for Jewish children and the usual Sabbath service, while Jewish festivals, such as the Passover, were observed as usual. In Chertsey, in Surrey, the foster mother of a 10-year-old Jewish boy from the East End discovered that he kept a huge, razor-sharp knife under his pillow. Having read of the German atrocities against his race, he was afraid his turn might come next. Forgive the sound of pages turning. Here we are. What is, which one is this? Here we are. A Manchester woman's worst 14 months of the war uh, were spent with her mother at Morecambe, as she turned out to detest small children, not excluding her three grandsons. Her daughter had only one night out during her whole stay, for having gone to see George Fomby at a local theater. She came home to find all four, the grandmother and the three kids, all blind drunk. <laughs> Her mother had, most effectively, kept the children quiet by sharing a bottle of whiskey with them. Go grandma, you might say. Um, and this is just the, the, the ups and downs of this entire process of people being shunted out of big cities, but then of them being pulled back, of there suddenly being an influx and then, uh, and then emptiness. And one passage mentions um, on subsequent visits to uh, a certain village, a certain town, um, she found the high street deserted except by six or seven people. And strangers were such a rarity that people would cross the road solely to speak to them. The population of Folkestone, for instance, shrank in just a few weeks from 46,000 to 6,000. One grocer had to be given special permission by the ministry to carry on with only eight registered customers, which was 18 less than the qualifying minimum under the rationing regulations. In the shopping center of Margate, grass grew in the streets. Either too many people or not enough. And you learn a great deal just about place names from a book like this. And of course, also about how uh, local village uh, groceries work as well. Here we are. Um, and this is talking about, well, you'll see it immediately. I don't need to explain this part. Uh, the bitterness of family separation was softened 
except for those whose husbands were stationed far away, by what, characteristically, the forces called privilege leave, and there were also various short-term passes, 48s, 36s, and even 24s, with compassionate leave, which was often jocularly known as passionate leave for family emergencies. The leaves were, for wives, even more perhaps than for husbands, treasured oases in a desert of loneliness. A Hertfordshire woman, married to a fellow teacher, felt that the whole of our lives was geared to the times when Daddy might be coming home on leave. For a Romford woman, every leave was like a second honeymoon. I saved all my clothing coupons to buy myself new clothes to greet him. And with so many families split up, the postman, or increasingly the postwoman, assumed unprecedented importance. And one Northern Ireland girl remembers, if the postman went by, if the postman went past, our day was ruined. If the postman went by without delivering, uh, without delivering a letter. The other thing about this book is that because it is about the home front, it is about England and not its soldiers overseas, many of the voices are uh, those of women. And that makes it uh, even more invaluable because otherwise, in other circumstances, you wouldn't be hearing any of this um, at all. And here, here it is, uh, a young woman living near Ipswich watched every morning for a local postwoman, easily distinguished at a distance, for she hurried along like a racing walker with arms moving in a scrubbing motion across her chest. Several times a week she brought a letter from an absent boyfriend. Oftentimes she came into view, the girl says, uh, waving one wildly, a letter, wildly, just as the bus passed to pick me up. But the conductor would say, well, run then, and I'd tear up the road to grab the letter with a hasty thank you, and then rush back to grins from the other occupants and a blissful journey into town, being able to uh, read this letter. Uh, such friendliness was typical of wartime. Many women have recollections of complete strangers, happy at receiving a letter from a serving husband, or perhaps worried at not hearing from him, relating their life stories on a bus or a train journey. And there is the British Reserve cracking again. Um, in, this, in this other one, uh, there is a, a young girl who was in love with a younger man who, who goes off and she realizes that she keeps writing to him even though she knows that he actually likes her sister better, but she keeps writing to him. And it says, the one who stands out in her memory, the man who stands out in her memory, is the young man to whom she wrote when he was posted away, although she admits I knew it was my elder sister that he was interested in. I grew up quickly when the letters were returned by his mother, who thanked me for writing to her son, her son who was now buried in the desert. He grew up quick with that going on. Uh, the son of a Lincolnshire farmer and his five brothers uh, found out that when we went to the, to the dance hall, the girls were not interested in us at all. They were all crazy for the boys in uniform. And to rub salt in the wound, our wheat fields suffered badly from the courting couples who used to hide in them. 
Imagine the crop circles that uh, appear uh, after a night in the fields. Um, and how we come to uh, a discussion of the, uh, the Ministry of Information and how uh, it didn't quite work out as well as they thought it would, at least at first. It says, comedians told the story of a, of a woman who, misled by its name, had called there to ask the way to Clapham and had been told that they didn't know, and if they did, they would not tell her. Uh, MPs and journalists gleefully invented new nicknames for it, the Ministry of Muddle, the Ministry of Malformation, and the Mystery of Information. That's my favorite. The Mystery of Information. Let's see here. It says, um, although a few people were still suspicious of some individuals that they met, the whole, if you see something, say something thing, the country as a whole escaped the spy mania of 1914 when World War I broke out. Usually it was those furthest from danger who gave themselves the illusion of helping the war effort by being excessively zealous. A Newcastle civil servant on holiday in a village in a remote part of Northumberland, where they didn't know there was a war on, he still laughs at the memory of being interviewed by an apologetic inspector after the locals who had previously refused to answer her questions about beauty spots in the neighborhood, had finally reported her for, quote, drawing plans of the village, the least military of targets, when she had sat on a wall outside the village pub writing picture postcards. And uh, very early in the war, the, uh, the ARP workers and the, uh, the, the fire crews that, that grew up but didn't have any fires to fight yet because the blitz hadn't begun yet. Um, these fire crews were sort of derided as not being of any use and of being lazy and of not going off to serve properly. And it says here, uh, another volunteer in East London only narrowly escaped a fight with a soldier who shouted about windy yids through the railings at the firemen, many of whom were Jewish, as they drilled in the station yard. In May 1940, the same fireman was actually asked to leave a Soho restaurant because he was in uniform, and the manager only reluctantly agreed that he could stay. But six months later, during the Blitz, still in uniform, he was given the best table and was waited on by the manager personally and given his meal on the house because nothing can be too good for a London fireman. I have a few more of these here. Oh, there's the take down your signs passage. Let's see. There we are. Uh, at Tunbridge Wells, the this is just uh, a chapter on the shelters that you would uh, build in your yard and just what the locals did with the damage from planes that did occur. At Tunbridge Wells, the cricket pitch was ruined by a crater. 
at Canterbury when the mayor opened a flower show with an air battle raging overhead. Few people even bothered to look up. And the photographs which appeared in the newspapers of local farmers harvesting with their steel helmets on while a battle raged in the skies above them were not exaggerated. In six months, 70,000 bombs fell on the farmlands of Kent, and it was not uncommon to find a machine gun bullet in one's milking pail or the apples stripped from the tree in one's orchard by blast or shell fragments. And it says, uh, crashed enemy aircraft became common landmarks, and Punch magazine was only exaggerating slightly in a cartoon published on the 4th of September, 1940, which showed one countryman directing a visitor in this way. Go down the lane past the Messerschmitt, bear left and keep on past the two Dorniers, then turn a sharp right, and it's just past the first Junkers. All the downed planes. This is a nice detail. Uh, you, this is from a, a family. Oh, they're, they're in Lancashire. Uh, this is how they prepared uh, for a night going to bed when you didn't know whether or not you would be bombed. Uh, each night, too, the father filled the bath with water in case of fire. We had a box of sand in the garden so we could deal with incendiary bombs. Imagine saying that. We had a box of sand in the garden so we could deal with incendiary bombs. Uh, one Surrey woman put a large notice on the back door. Don't forget, handbag, identity card, gas mask, ration book. In this family, as in many others, we dressed rather than undressed to go to bed. And of course, there's the other side of that, um, which is the people who refused to uh, leave at all, especially the older people who perhaps were just simply unable to get out of their beds in the middle of the night and go outside. Um, a woman from Old Colston, Surrey, was amused by her elderly aunt's precaution of always wearing her underclothes while bathing because she feared, quote, she might have to be rescued by someone before she finished. And here are the last two, at least for this evening. I could just keep going on and on with this. Um, it says, a Kingston woman also remembers singing in a very quavery voice to her small son as they lay beneath their Morrison shelter, the, the shelters that they would uh, build outside the houses. Um, until the little boy complained, Mummy, stop singing. I can't hear the bombs. The private dread of one woman in Hertfordshire was that, quote, the house might come down on us and that we might be buried alive in the debris. I felt I could not contemplate hearing the children's cries and not being able to get to them. I kept two spare pillows ready each night and prayed that I might have the courage and strength to smother them in time. And you get the details like that um, and you begin to understand uh, what people uh, live through that you don't perhaps see on their faces. You just see them walking by you on the street, but they lived through a thing like this or contemplated making a decision 
uh, like that. Or with this very last thing that I'm reading tonight, uh, you walk by a man or a woman and have no idea that they had to uh, live through this right here. It says, one London woman recalls how a local school was hit one dinner time, and it was my painful duty to help by picking up any article I saw unearthed as the men dug. I held aloft a small pink purse. No words were needed. The mother of the child to whom it belonged held out her hand, her face so anguished it was frightful to behold. She took it and was led wordlessly away.